Our scripture reading for today begins in Psalm 52, a Psalm of David. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? Why do you boast all day long, you who are a disgrace in the eyes of God? You who practice deceit, your tongue plots destruction. It is like a sharpened razor. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, you deceitful tongue. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and pluck you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear. They will laugh at you, saying, Here now is the one who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth, and grew strong by destroying others. But I am like an olive tree, flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. For what you have done, I will always praise you in the presence of your faithful people, and I will hope in your name, for your name is good. Our next reading comes from 2 Samuel chapter 8, and I'm going to start in verse 6, um, just to give us a little context before, uh, before the, this, this passage starts. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadadazar and brought them to Jerusalem. From Teba and Barothai, towns that belonged to Hadadazar, King David took a great quantity of bronze. When two king of Hamath heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadazar, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadazar, who had been at war with two. Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued, Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadazar, son of Rehob, king of Jobah. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And our final reading is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Is on now? 
Now it's hot. Okay, let me start again. We're doing a sermon series entitled The Soothing Psalms of the Soul. And I have to wonder, when Andrew and the Worship Commission came up with this series title, if they were a little bit <clears throat> fixated on a few psalms, like Psalm 8 or Psalm 23, where the writers are indeed joyful and maybe soothing. But when you look at psalms as a whole, it's a song book and it's a prayer book, and as such, it expresses all kinds of human emotions, many of which are dark. There's anger, there's vindictiveness, there's fear, there's despair. So last week, Andrew talked about uh, Psalm 82, which confronts humans usurping God's authority and not recognizing God's power. All right. This week, I get to look at a psalm that's full of anguish, pain, tragedy, and ultimately surrender and hope. My hope is that looking in the way, at the way that David prays in this psalm, we can actually get better at having honest conversation with God's ourselves. Like many psalms, Psalm 52 is a lament. There are different forms of lament, and not all of them are in the Bible. But any reader of Scripture finds that lament is throughout the Old and New Testaments. It's a particular way of talking to God that gives voice to things that we otherwise might not say. This psalm has three parts, and we're going to walk through them this morning. First, naming the enemy. Second, a cry for justice. And third, surrender to God. Now, if you're anything like me, and if you're really honest, you know that you self-edit your prayers. I mean, I do it all the time. Really, I'm talking to the God of the universe, right? I want to be respectful. I want to be aware of my place in things. So I leave stuff out. I don't really want to express unchristian things like hate or jealousy, envy or rage, so I say it nicely. Dear God, if you are willing, kindly look on this situation and do your will. See, nothing offensive in there, right? It's easy. That's where lament teaches us an important lesson about prayer. When we practice lament, we're learning to be honest. And in being honest, we actually draw closer to God. As we look at this particular psalm, remember David's reputation as a king after God's own heart. There's something about David, something significant. Now, he had failures, but there's something significant that earned him a reputation for reflecting the God he served. Perhaps it had to do with this ability to be honest. Through his lamenting, David found a language to express both his deepest feelings and his deepest longings. It says something about his relationship with God that he had the confidence to talk this boldly. So let's look more closely at Psalm 52. We're told in the little intro at the beginning that this that gives us a context for this prayer. This lament was written in response to Doag's slaughter of the priests at Nob. Now, we didn't take the time to read the several chapters in 1 Samuel where that is all told, so let me summarize here. If you recall, David was anointed to replace Saul after Saul disobeyed God. 
and it was a secret. But Saul, perhaps sensing that God had chosen David as his successor, well, actually, before that, you get to Goliath and David killing lots of people as Saul's head of his army. But then Saul starts to get the sense that God perhaps has chosen David as his successor, and he grows paranoid and jealous. And then he throws a cheeseburger at him. I mean, a spear. Glad somebody got that. <laughs> and soon it's clear that Saul is truly trying to get David. He's trying to eliminate him. So David goes on the run. And early in this cat and mouse chase, David shows up at the village of Nob and is helped by the priest there. Little does David seem to know that by by going to the priest at Nob, he has now put the priest and his family in Saul's crosshairs. There's a witness there when David's there, a guy named Doag. Now, Doag is not an Israelite. He's from Edom, a neighboring tribe in a neighboring region. He's not a follower of God. But he happens to be there doing something some sort of a religious ritual, perhaps. Uh, we'll get to that in a little bit more. But he over, overhears this exchange between Amalek, the priest, and David. Sometime later, Doeg is back in Saul's court. He was the head shepherd of Saul's flock, so he was a part of the court uh, of, of Saul. And he hears Saul denouncing David. To try and curry Saul's favor, he reports what he saw. Saul is livid. But none of the Israelites in Saul's court are willing to do anything about it. But Doag isn't so constrained. And, all, and he volunteers to carry out the retribution against the priests of Noab. So he goes and he kills 85 priestly men and then proceeds to destroy the village of Nob, including all the women, children, and animals. Pretty aggressive. Now, David is still on the run, but one of the survivors comes and finds him and tells him the story. And David takes it hard. He takes full responsibility. He says, it's my fault. But he, and he offers this man protection. And then at some point, he sits down to jot down Psalm 52. Now, the story continues, and it isn't clear how long it is between all this happening and when David actually becomes king. But it happens. But this element is a very pretty awful story in that whole series of events. Doag is clearly conniving, cruel, vicious, and willing to do anything to curry favor with Saul. David's fury is evident in the psalm, and he doesn't mince his words. Look again at what the text says. Not only is Doag evil, but he boasts of his evil. Sarcastically, David says, he calls him a hero, attacking a defenseless village and priests. Instead of glory, David declares his, his deeds bring him disgrace. It makes me curious. What, if anything, Doag and David talked about at Nob? Because David really seems to drill into this deceit thing, his lying tongue, 
in his description of Doag. Maybe there was some exchange. Maybe Doag said something that made David feel like he was okay. And then he turned. We don't know. This first part of Psalm 52 is a blistering teardown of a man who sought power through his evil deeds. And I want to pause here and ask a couple of questions. First, how good are you at seeing your enemies? Second, when you see your enemies, how would you describe what makes them an enemy? Do you know? I imagine if I were to ask anybody in this room, who are your enemies, most of us would say, oh, we have a hard time naming anybody as an enemy, right? It feels like a huge accusation to call somebody an enemy. Nevertheless, we have plenty of voices in our culture telling us who our enemies are. You might get things like this in your email. Or pictures like this might provoke your emotions and cause you to think they're representing your enemies. But the boogeyman, the woman, or boogeywoman, or the non-binary boogie person out there isn't our enemy. Let me say it again. The person out there isn't our enemy. Enemies are personal. They're actual people. We see enemies in our office politics. We see enemies in our neighborhoods. We see enemies in our families. And we see enemies in our churches. I'm not calling this out to get us all riled up. But as I read the story in the Psalm of David, it strikes me that he didn't live in the nice world that we live in today. Then I ask myself, and I wonder for all of us, have we taken Jesus' command to love our enemies in a direction he never intended? To love your enemy, you have to know your enemy. You can't love your enemy if you're not in a relationship with your enemy. Somehow we think that having no enemies makes us loving people. Not so. Now this presents a problem. Who is my enemy is a serious question. If everybody that made me angry or everybody who opposes my view if everybody who disagrees with me is everybody who sees things different than me, than me is my enemy. I have a lot of enemies. It would drive me crazy. As with all things, it takes discernment. My point here isn't to be afraid or to rage at all of our enemies, but to encourage us not to shirk from the practice of naming our enemies, which leads to the second question. What are the attributes of our enemies? How would you describe an enemy? Let's remember the story. Doag is at Nob, and what's he doing? He's performing some sort of a religious duty. He's an Edenite. He didn't, he didn't grow up worshiping the God of Israel. So what's he doing there? Is he going through some religious practice to curry favor with Saul? to make it okay that he's a part of Saul's cabinet? Is that what he's doing? Is this all false? 
It seems that David is most concerned about the falseness of Doag. He's concerned about the death of the 85 people, don't get me wrong. But he sums it up in, in verse 7 when he says his worst crime, he did not make God his stronghold. Verse 7, I should say. But he, he trusted his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. So he put his faith in his own power, is what David says was his biggest issue. So someone who is actively serving themselves rather than God is a potential enemy. Our enemies don't just make us feel bad, and they don't just irritate us or frustrate us or fail to do the things that we want them to do. Rather, enemies are people who do those things as an expression of their opposition to God. In the New Testament, Apostle John has another way of saying it. In John, 1 John chapter 4, uh, 2-3, this is how you recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus came in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. And this is the Antichrist, or in other words, the enemy of Christ, which you have already heard is coming and is already in the world. So there are forces in the world that are opposing what God is doing. Those are our enemies. And there are plenty of people in our world who give lip service to Jesus. But when we're not around, they're actively working to oppose God's plans. I want to acknowledge here, too, that our insight is very limited. I only know what I know. When I perceive somebody or sense somebody as an enemy, I need to be careful because I'm not God. I'm not their judge. I only have my understanding, and it's really limited. So it would be wildly inappropriate for me to declare somebody my enemy and then publicly shame them or put on Facebook that, that this person is an enemy of God. That's just not right. We don't make absolute declarations about them. As we'll see, David provides a good example of what to do. Let's move on to the second part of the psalm. I'm calling this second section, Cry for Justice, because in it, David expresses his longing for the outcome. David's wish for Doag is that he would be utterly destroyed. David wants Doag's betrayal of God to be met with shame and disrepute. He doesn't mince words. There's a point to this. The righteous, seeing this, those who follow God will see that God has vindicated himself and it causes us to have greater faith. So again, God's action provokes something here. And, David's, and, and we see this in the last part. David is not pulling his punches. I, too, think this is hard for us as Christians. Just like we saw in the last section where we don't want to name our enemies, we have a hard time talking about what we would really like to have happen to them. Right? That's what we need to do. I, I have had circumstances where I have felt unjustly opposed, belittled, it, both at work and in my family settings. It's happened, you know. What really gets under my skin 
isn't that people oppose me, it's that when they do it arrogantly, right? So they don't ask a question, they just accuse. They didn't seek to find common ground, they just reacted. The result is I get blindsided. I have to deal with the damage to my reputation. And I don't know about you, but the work that I do at my office and in my family, I try to see as an expression of my work toward the kingdom of God. And when people oppose that or people undermine that, it's frustrating. And I'm angry. I can feel like they're standing in the way of the kingdom. So what do I want? What do I really want? I want to see them humbled. I want to see them taken down a peg or two. I want to be justified. These are really hard things to pray. What I usually do is I go to God and I say things like, Lord, let the work that I'm doing still continue to serve you. Or, help me have a loving attitude toward this person. Nice prayers, all good prayers. But it's avoiding the harder, deeper stuff, the harder, deeper feelings. How can I claim to have an intimate relationship with God when I don't really express what I feel? The point here is that once we identify our enemies, it's time for a true heart-to-heart with God. We need to own all of our feelings, even our darker longings. Bringing these things honestly to God is necessary because they are really there. Our hiding them doesn't make them go away. Instead, we're more likely to grow in our anger or act out passive-aggressively or even perpetuate the harm that we're trying to avoid because we haven't been honest. What good is it to celebrate God's acting in such circumstances if we haven't fully named how much we need his help? When we edit our prayers, stuff down the bad feelings, what we're actually doing is stuffing down our ability to rejoice in what God does when he acts. David didn't have this problem. Not that he was unfiltered, sharing every thought on Facebook, but he was honest about what he thought, felt, and sensed. And he put it all on the table to God, the one place it needs to go. He didn't judge himself or be self-critical. He didn't say, oh my gosh, I'm feeling bad. Right? He simply cried out to God to make it better, to make it better than better, to make it better than right. So, now that we have a fix on our enemies and why they're our enemies and what we want to have happen to them, we're ready to take action, right? Let's go get them. In our divided culture, that's certainly how the conversation tends to go. Whether it's supposed to throw out the rhinos or publicly scourge the bougie faux allies who talk a good game but are driving their big SUVs and cluck about how the lawn company works, we are told to attack those who are our enemies. But David takes another approach. 
having given voice to what's really going on, he rests. Now this, in comparison to Doag, who doesn't make God his stronghold, David will put all his energy into trusting God. This is a really big swing. Remember, David is powerful. Even when he's on the run from Saul, he has killed Goliath and thousands of others in battle. And as Alyssa read, once he became king, he subdued everything. Even the Moabites and the Edomites, right? No mention of Doag. So it wouldn't be hard for the end of David's prayer to look more like this. God, you anointed me to be king. And when I get there, I am so committed to you, I will hunt down every last one of your enemies, and I will rain destructions on their heads like there has never been in the history of the world. But he doesn't. I can't imagine that this was easy. It's hard work. But I can see in this another piece of how David gets the reputation of having a heart like the God he serves. You see, God has lots of enemies, including everybody in this room. God's enemy is us in our sin. Our attitudes, our arrogance, our actions are counter to God's intent. As sinners, we were, we were once enemies, as Paul says in Colossians. But God is working on a plan of salvation. That's the big picture. To be a member of God's kingdom is to be about that mission and not anything else. God is in charge, not David and not me. So I'm guessing, but I don't think it's a stretch, to that I'm imagining David really wrestling with this. In doing so, I see another way that David shows us his heart. And it's a heart after, after Jesus, our primary model in all of these things. Jesus had to come to a point of surrender as well. In Gethsemane, he had to surrender to the way God was going to make this happen. A few moments later, in a conversation with Pilate, he said, look, if I was about this world, this would be over by now because I got a bigger army than you. Right? But that's not what he did. He had to choose to trust that God is about something else. To have a heart that is pure, to be righteous, to follow both Jesus and David, is to have absolute trust in God's unfailing love that will win out. So, we've walked through David's lament. We thought about what it means to really try and be honest in our prayers. We see that this raw honesty brings us to a crisis, a choice. Do we really trust God? Are we going to give God all of our grief, all of our pain, all of our anger, and our violent notions? This is a potentially difficult and dark path. And it may feel like we're letting our inner beasts out. The truth is, the beast comes out anyway, in some form, and we can't control it.
Praise be to God that we have this tool of prayer of lament to guide us to a place of rest. Let me offer this concluding thought. We've talked a lot about enemies today, and that may feel uncomfortable. It may cause some of us to question, well, how can this be if Jesus instructed us to love our enemies? And I want you to know I take that seriously. That said, I don't think I can authentically love an enemy that I haven't named and lamented about. I've got to do the work. It's through this pattern of naming our enemies and expressing to God our cry for justice, then resting, that it opens the door to love. This is particularly true in the church. Because we fail to lament, we fail to surrender. When we fail to surrender, we fail to see God at work. When we fail to see God at work, we work harder to make, every, make sure that everything lines up, that it's exactly the way we want it. Or we feel things aren't right, so we put extra effort in to make them right. In my estimation, that's the root of much of the division and provides the opportunity for our real enemy to tear us apart. So, when you feel you're attacked, opposed, or unjustly accused, Rather than responding in kind, lament, pray. Trust and open the door to love. Thanks be to God.